0: One of the most famous books written, um, if you're into theological stuff, was written by Augustine. And uh, Augustine wrote uh, what's probably his most famous tome, called The City of God. And in The City of God, he took the concept from the book of Daniel. And there, what he saw was that Babylon, which is a foreign nation to Israel, a pagan nation that Babylon becomes a type of the whole world. That there's one city, one way of governing, one way of ruling that is typified by the city of Babylon. And that in contrast to that, uh, Abraham, for instance, when he was called out of Ur of the Chaldees, which is where Babylon was, not far from there, um, we're told in Hebrews that he was looking for a city whose builder and maker was God. And that this is the great contrast that is behind all of human history. That God is building his kingdom and preparing for his city to come, which you see in the final chapters of the book of Revelation, where the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven. And as a part of that, the city of Babylon, the city of this world, is finally destroyed. This world's values, the way that this world thinks and functions, all goes by the wayside. So that forms a good backdrop as you're seeing the events of this book unfold in front of you and particularly uh, as we see from chapter 2 that vision that Nebuchadnezzar had of the of the uh, uh, an image that had a head of gold and a chest of silver and and a midsection of bronze and then legs of uh, iron and feet of iron and clay that these great world empires will at last all succumb to the glory of Christ. And His kingdom was set up during the days of, of the, that, that final kingdom that we saw in the image, and, and that kingdom will grow and grow and grow till at last He conquers. And so you've got that huge paradigm going on in all of this, and you don't want to miss it in the process. Uh, you'll remember, and uh, this morning, the, we're only going to have time to go through a, a series of observations. So keep your notes, because we're going to come back and do those applications uh, next week, God willing. I just think I don't think we'll have a, a time to go through all of the observations we want to make. But where you are at present, uh, it's important to help locate yourself chronologically in the book. Uh, chapter 1 was the year of the capture of Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. That was their Hebrew names before they were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel. They were part of the Jewish nobility, and they were captured in the siege of Jerusalem in 605 B.C. by Nebuchadnezzar. And as a result of that siege, they were hauled off to Babylon, where they were to be trained to serve in the king's court. Nebuchadnezzar was made king that very year. His father had been king, his father died, and he left the siege of Jerusalem to go back and to take over the kingdom. So then the events of chapter two happen three years into that captivity at the end of the preparation of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel. And they're ready to do their thing. Chapter three jumps ahead nearly 20 years. Now we don't get that in the text. Where we do get that is from ancient Jewish commentators who noted, and that'll become very important to you as you read the rest of this chapter as we tease out some of the portions, that Later, Nebuchadnezzar went back to Jerusalem and totally destroyed it. It was his third attack. There was one before 605 B.C., then there was the one in 605 when Daniel was captured. And then in 587 B.C., he went back. And when he goes back, he totally destroys the temple. He burns it to the ground. There's nothing left. And so the events that take place in chapter 3 take place shortly after that final destruction of Jerusalem. That's going to play heavily into the text as we work through this. And again, we know this from ancient Jewish commentators as they left their mark on the books surrounding this. And you do gain from that one thing. Daniel and his three friends have been in Babylon and they've been influencing the king, influencing the city because they've held high positions, influencing the culture for 20 years. But the truth is... The city of God and the city of Babylon, the city of this world, can never actually mix. Now, we've told you one of the other major backdrops to this book is that the human race was in the city of God in the Garden of Eden, and we were exiled from there due to the fall, and that we'll return there if we're Christians when... Christ returns. But for now, we're in Babylon. And you need to know that as much as we need to infiltrate and do what we can in Babylon, we never actually become a part of Babylon. Or if we can take the New Testament statement, we are in the world, but we're not of the world. There's a difference. So 20 years into their captivity, and you have to note at this point that sooner or later, even after a long and cordial relationship, the world will turn its back on God's people. We wonder why America right now is moving further and further away from Christianity because you cannot have a human government established on Christian principles when the people serving in that government, and certainly some are born again, but when they are not born again of the Spirit of Christ. You can't have the outward trapping Without the inward reality. Sooner or later it falls apart. And this is exactly where they were. You remember the words of Jesus in Luke 7. He used this comparison to mark out the difference between what was happening with himself and the disciples and the the surrounding Israel at that time. In Luke 7, he says, To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. And this is what they call. We played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge for you and you didn't weep. And then he applies it. You see, John the Baptist came and he was not eating bread and drinking no wine. He was, he was living a very austere lifestyle. And you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come. And I am eating and drinking. I'm not living that same lifestyle that marked out John the Baptist. And you say, look at him. He's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He says, but wisdom's finally justified by its children. And this is the way the Christian is. The world plays its happy songs, but we don't rejoice in the same things the world does. And the world grieves over its griefs, but we don't grieve over the same things the world grieves over. I think about this right now, especially as, I, as my mother has gone home and over a period here is going to go home with Jesus. Those in the world, this is grief and heaviness. Now, I grieve for me because I'll have to suffer the loss. But I won't grieve for her because I know what she'll gain. You know, we, don't, we don't play the same tune. We don't dance to the same things. We don't cry at the same things. We have a whole different system. This is where the, the contrast is seen. And this is what's happening with them as they are in this place. So King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits. And this is a, a truly strange configuration. 60 cubits high and it's breadth 6 cubits. That's, that's 9 feet wide and 90 feet high. It's probably more of an obelisk, but we'll come back and we'll discuss that in a second. And he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather all of his counselors, which we had read for us, and all the officials of the provinces, and they were to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now, what this image is precisely, we don't know. History doesn't record it for us. Nobody apparently had a digital camera at the time. And if they had, they would have preserved the image. And we, of course, would have built something quite like it. Um, but we do know that in chapter 2, this was the image, or something similar to this, that Nebuchadnezzar had seen. Remember, it had a head of gold, which represented the Babylonian Empire. And it had a chest of silver, which represented the Medo-Persian Empire that was going to come after them. And then it had loins of bronze, which was going to represent the Grecian Empire, which would come after the fall of the, the Medo-Babylonian Empire. Empire. And we're, we're going to discuss these in further detail later in the book because Daniel unpacks this for us, gratefully, in, in chapters uh, 6, 7, and 8. And then these legs of iron and finally these feet of iron and clay mixed. And Daniel explained this image to Nebuchadnezzar. It was the dream he had, and he said, you, king, are this head of gold, you and Babylon now, and then there's going to be these inferior kingdoms who follow you, but I want you to know who you are. So now, 20 years later, all of a sudden, Nebuchadnezzar gets this idea, I'm going to raise this image in the plain of Dura. Now, maybe the second image... Um, was similar to what he saw, but now it's all gold. That's because the text does say that the new image is all gold. Maybe it mimicked the original dream. I don't know. Maybe it was an obelisk, like I said. Maybe it was a, an image of what he thought Daniel's revealing God might be like. But more than likely, because of the timing of the raising of this image... It had to do with the destruction of Jerusalem. He had gone back and destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, which would have been conquering the Jews' God. And that's going to play a very important role as we move further through the chapter. And more than likely, then, declared, This God who revealed all of these truths to me, I've conquered him, and now I'm the whole deal. I'm it. There's a tendency, and we'll come back to this later, to put ourselves in those places. God graciously does not reveal everything to us because of what we do with the information. We're dangerous, especially future prophecy. Uh, We've just seen that, haven't we? And we're going to see it again in October when, according to Harold Camping, the world finally does end again. Again and again and again. Uh, Just this week, um, Eric Kerr emailed me uh, a question about a particular individual, and I did not recognize the name, but uh, made a quick uh, check on the association. And this gentleman has taken over what used to be um, uh, Armstrong's Worldwide Church of God, Herbert W. Armstrong. Uh, Armstrong came on the scene in the 1930s. And he proclaimed himself a prophet of God. And in the process, he then said, Jesus is coming in 1942. Well, you have to revise in 1943. So he shifted that a few more years out. Didn't happen then, so then he shifted it to 1977. That didn't work out either. So then he said, well, it's indefinite. Duh. Thank you very much. I'm very helpful. But as soon as we think we've got it all wrapped up, everything starts coming apart and somehow Nebuchadnezzar thought he had it all wrapped up and, and he didn't. So, uh, this great conclave is called. I want you to come out to the plain of Dura and I want you to worship this image. There may be a cultural side, to why there is the naming of all the different instruments and all of the different kinds of music. It may have been Nebuchadnezzar's idea that I'm going to have a little something for every ethnic group I've I've conquered. Hence the bagpipes. He wants the Scottish people to be able to worship this god. Oh, come on, folks, wake up. All right. And so so he's he's probably appealing to the different ethnic groups. We don't know for sure, but there's an interesting it's interesting that that's noted for us twice and that the list has gone through uh, very carefully. So he brings them out. Uh, verse three, the satraps, the prefects, the governors, as Todd noted, all of his cabinet, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates. This was a universal thing. It was a governmental call. Was the government saying, we're going to do this. We're going to promote this particular point of view. It's always a problem whether the government is a secular government or whether the government is a paganly ruled government. It's always a problem when the government makes these kinds of proclamations. And the herald proclaimed aloud, verse 4, You are commanded, O peoples and nations and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Now this is going to come back and haunt us. We're going to come back in the applications and deal with this. But this is going to play into each of us understanding what the biblical perspective on civil disobedience is. It's going to be very useful for us. There's going to be two tools given to us in the book of Daniel to sort that out. And unfortunately, I think sometimes these two tools are lost or these two principles. But in this case, here's the problem. At this point, all of the officials, which would have included uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are commanded to do something which God's word expressly forbids them to do. Now that's a tough spot. This isn't just something that they didn't like. It's something that God's word forbade them from doing. We won't go back and look at that now. We'll tease that out next week and we'll see the command in Exodus where God forbids this. And anyway, the herald proclaimed that this command was to take place. And in verse 6, he rounds it out and says, Whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace, not fun. Uh, I thought about this a little bit this morning as I was showing Sky, and I don't know how many of you get uh, Ben Askin's Facebook page, but there's a wonderful picture of Ben right now who is over in Iraq sitting in one of Saddam Hussein's thrones with his, with his army rifle in front of him. I thought that was rather ironic, but um, thinking about this with this passage. Uh, whoever does not fall down and worship the image shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And therefore, as soon as the peoples heard these sounds, they fell down and they worshiped the golden image. But therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans... Now, remember from chapter 2, the Chaldeans are part of this inner group of counselors that Nebuchadnezzar has. He has astrologers, he has uh, magicians... He has these counselors. He has Chaldeans who are wise men. And Daniel's been promoted. He's, this is his staff, which would, of course, put a Christian in a funny place, wouldn't it? But that's where he is. He's, he's head over these guys. And, but these certain Chaldeans came forward, and they maliciously accused the Jews. They had a problem with these guys. Probably didn't like the fact that they had been promoted over them. Probably personal. They were maliciously attacked. And this is the way that they put the attack, and it's important to see how the three men responded to it. They declared, verse 9, to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. It's always good to butter the king up. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. They were just hopeful. They felt they needed to remind him of the details because they had a goal in mind. We do that, don't we? We do that in prayer, don't we? We want to remind God of the details because you know, just in case something slipped through the cracks, we want to make sure he understands it from our point of view. There are certain Jews, verse 12, whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these men, O God, now note the way they load the statements. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. That's a pretty absolute. They're rebels. They're contrary to your rule. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So note how the accusers make this a personal issue. They pay no attention to you, and they exaggerate it by saying they pay no attention to you. Now, there was no treason in these men. Remember, we read from Jeremiah 27, God's command to the people who were carried off into exile was, you work for the welfare of the nation where you've been carried off into exile. You pray for them, you support them, you do good things there you you improve the conditions while you're there and these guys say now they they're turning their back on you. and you're getting a hint there, aren't you just quickly of what a pre a little bit of a glimpse of Christ this is even as you see them because the cross was the ultimate malicious act of humanity. I mean, the cross was the proof, the absolute proof, that given the opportunity, we will murder God. Because we want to be God. Oh, no, we don't necessarily want to be omnipotent or omniscient. I've worked my best at being omnipresent. (laughs) We, We don't actually think in those divine terms. We just have this... I want the right of supremacy over my own soul, and I want to determine for myself right from wrong. Nobody will tell me. That's idolatry. We want to murder God, so He can't tell us. So He doesn't have the right of supremacy over us. Just like these men, Jesus did no harm. He broke no law of righteousness. His biggest problem was He would not bow except to his father. That's that's rebellion against this world. That isn't the way the world wants to function. The Hebrews, I notice here, are so careful. They don't respond to those accusations. They keep their focus. The focus is not bowing down, not the false accusations that they didn't serve the king. They're not going to get sidetracked. They know what the real issue is. And they want to make sure that they keep it there. And I want to get us to think in these terms that we are not surprised when all it will take, even in our own country, to be considered an enemy of the state is to be devoted to God supremely. I want us to be ready for when the day comes. Will it happen in my lifetime, yours? I don't know. And if God is gracious, maybe it won't happen at all, but it is the course of every secular society. And we need to be aware of that. We can't be fooled that it won't be that way. This is repeated every every time in every society, in every culture, throughout human history. Well, Nebuchadnezzar is in a furious rage, verse 13. He commanded, no doubt he he had red hair because red people with red hair always get angry. Maybe he's an Irish drunk. I, that could be too. He's a weird connection with the bagpipes, so I don't know. <sighs> Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that these three be brought to him, and so they brought them before the king. And then Nebuchadnezzar is incredulous. Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I've set up? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, I mean, I'm making this as broad as I possibly can, if you will just think about this. If you're just willing to go along where you can. You know, the lyre and the harp were Jewish instruments. And we'll play a little bit of your music just like we did at the beginning of the service here and you know if you just go along I'm, I'm not trying to really destroy everything but just jump on the bandwagon bend a little if you do that then well well and good he says but if you do not worship you will immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace and who is the god who will deliver you out of my hands that stung It's his way. My sky is always challenging me. I am the prince of indirect communication. I like innuendo. I like to leave hints. Especially in things that are difficult to say. Like, I don't like this meal. Whew. I'm, I'm going to find a different way to say that, you know. <laughs> kind of like, I feel a mission for the starving squirrels in the yard. You <laughs> know, <laughs> I'm going to look for a different way around that. This is is a not so indirect harpoon to the heart for these men. What does he say? Who's the God that will deliver you? Guys, I just came back from vanquishing Jerusalem. Your temple is gone. What God do you think can save you now? You have no holy of holies. You have no priesthood. You have no Ark of the Covenant. It's over. I can only imagine what was going through their heads at that moment. That had to shake them. But you'd never understand that from the text. They are amazing in their response. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, verse 16, answered and said to the king, Oh, even before I get there, isn't it in the second chance that we tend to weaken? They had obeyed very bravely when the first command came out. When you hear the music, bow down. And now Nebuchadnezzar shows how magnanimous he is and how willing he is to work with him and says, look, I'll excuse your first indiscretion if you'll just come along now. That's when I'm more likely to fall, is in the second pitch. Temptation never comes to us in one shot. It always comes reasoning again and again and again. And their temptation to cowardice and to to rejecting the rule of Christ was... Right there. They have to remember that they were delivered into Nebuchadnezzar's hands because Israel had sinned. They were under judgment. So they're in a very difficult place. How do I, smarting from the hand of God's chastening, also still stand upright? It's a difficult place. Maybe you're there today. Maybe you've sinned in such a way that you're really suffering the results. You've brought it on yourself. You know it's your fault. You know the havoc it's created in your life. And you're saying, can I still rely on God? And he says, absolutely. Because I chasten those I love. My chastening isn't my abandonment. It's my attention to you. They know that. They've got that. These three guys got that. And there they stood. And so they said, well, king, this is it. O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. In other words, we don't have to make up a reason to defend ourselves. We don't have to try and skirt the truth. We don't have to say, well, we couldn't really hear the music because our iPods were too high or you know, they were only playing down in the town square and I was out at the summer house. And no, they, they don't have to try and make an excuse. King, we, we have no need to answer you, no need to come up with some sort of a, of a, a response that somehow will lessen your rage. As a matter of fact, let us put it before you the way we understand the situation. If this be so, if this be so, if in fact you are going to throw us into a fiery furnace because we have refused to bow down, let's be clear about the if this be so. If that's the reality, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace. We want you to know, even though we are under his chastening hand, we have full confidence that if God decides to, he can still pull us out of here. No problem. But if he does not, be it known to you, O king, we will not bow down. We will not serve your gods or the golden image that you've set up either way we will be delivered out of your hand either god will do it miraculously in sparing us from the furnace or he will use the furnace to deliver us but we will be delivered i don't know how many of us have the courage to think that way in this day and age part of it is because we're so convinced that we know how we know how god ought to answer all of our prayers Deliverance must look like this. And then we put God into the box, and then he decides, no, I'm going to do that differently, and then our faith is injured, and we think God's mistreated us. No. Not at all. They had this really locked. They understood fully the implications, and they understood where they needed to be in the middle of it. I find it very curious at this point that Daniel is absent. We're going to come back and revisit that next week, God willing, but let me just tease the idea out for you that at this point, they acted obediently before God and they needed to stand on their own two feet. Some of you young people need to get this. You need to hear this. Your mom and your dad will not always be there when you face the trial. Temptation, And now is the time to begin to think, how will I stand on my feet with God alone? It can happen to you at a very young age. These men, at this point, are probably in their 30s, but remember, they were captured in their teens. Young men. And some of you young gals, you young men, You're standing to make those choices right now. And mom and dad can't make the choice for you. You have to say, I will serve God. I don't know if Daniel is purposely out of the picture here. In other words, a choice that he made to step back or if he's simply not a part of the picture at all. The text doesn't tell us. But it's true that Jesus in our day often lets us stand on our own independence of the Holy Spirit rather than being here bodily to do the hard work. Because that's the way he lived. Independence upon the Holy Spirit. Calling us to do in his incarnation and calling us to do the same. So, if this is the way it is, God's able to keep us out. But either way, we're going to be delivered out of your hand. Can I also note here that they did not carry this to the point of saying, well, because this is so, then we don't have to pay you in anything. That's going to be very evident when we come later to the end of this chapter. They don't take this as a signal that now there can be wholesale overthrow of the government simply because the government had made an error in its particular pronouncement. They don't look at it that way. They see themselves as still being obedient to God in their circumstances, and they don't take this as carte blanche to just say, well, we can, we can break out against everything because they've done this. And they didn't see their deliverance as license to disobey across the board. And we'll see that again next week in a little more detail. So, Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, verse 19. He apparently happens to him a lot. Happened in chapter 2. It's happened twice so far in chapter 3. This guy needed an anger management course. He was filled with fury, and the expression of his face changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's one thing to have somebody on your side and pleading with you, and then when they all of a sudden, when the switch flips, and they are your enemy, and you can't turn that around, that's a very helpless place to be. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. That's a Hebraism for get it really hot. I want to burn these guys. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind them and to cast them into the fiery furnace. And these men were... and, and Notice how the scripture puts this because it emphasizes it several times. He ordered that they be bound, and then these men were bound in their cloaks and their tunics and their hats and their other garments, the symbols of their position in that society. Bind them up in those things. And they were thrown into the fiery furnace, and because the king was a little uh, urgent here, still got that anger problem, the furnace was overheated. This, this was a dangerous job. And the flame of the fire killed the men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, follow the language again, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. That bondage thing is going to be very important next week when we come back. Keep it floating around in your, in your cranium. Verse 24, and then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. Oh, good. He isn't angry anymore. He's astonished. And he rose up in haste, and, and he declared to his counselors, didn't we cast three men bound into the fire? There's that bound thing again. He's big on this. Don't let it escape you. There's a reason why that repetition is there. Remember, when they wrote Hebrew and when they wrote Greek, and, and this particular passage is written in Aramaic. We know that up until chapter 7. It's written in Aramaic from a point in chapter 2 all the way up to the, to chapter 7. Uh, that When they emphasized things, the literary uh, form, the the literary technique that was used, they didn't have highlighters, and they didn't have bold fonts, and they couldn't put it in all caps, and they didn't underline it. They repeated it. That's how you get emphasis in the text. And so that's what's happening right here. He's the, The text is emphasizing for us what happened. And so he came, He he says, didn't we cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered and said to the king, any of you seen Pride and Prejudice, the BBC version? You know know the guy that plays the the parson? The little wormy guy? It's it's his voice I hear in this next verse. And, And they answered and said to the king, Oh, true, oh, king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound and walking. In the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like the Son of God. <laughs> I cannot imagine seeing this. I mean, I think the artist's representation here is pretty good. I, I love the imagery that he uses there this this just son of God glowing on the side, the three men walking around and they got kind of, where what in the world is Is going on. Astounding. What's important here, and you really need to get this, because we are going to get a wonderful transition in chapter 4, but Nebuchadnezzar is still a pagan. He's still an idol worshiper. He has just seen the most amazing thing his physical eyes will ever see, and it does not convert him. How often we are anxious if so-and-so could just see a miracle. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're an unbeliever here today. And you've said, if God would just do, I'd believe. I'd be convinced. It would absolutely be it. A miracle would settle it for me. No, it wouldn't. No, it wouldn't. We... We know that that isn't the case. To the unbelieving, no miracle, no matter how great or evident or irrefutable is enough. Nebuchadnezzar saw all this. It didn't change him. Matter of fact, you get that from his language. Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning, fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. And I would have said, oh, no, you come and get me. They didn't. Just look at the humility of their attitude. Look at their response. They've just been abused beyond belief, and they came out from the fire. They were still obedient servants, even though they couldn't obey in that area that had been given to them. The satraps, the prefects, the governors, the king's counselors, they gathered together. What bugged them was they saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of these men. I mean, they wanted them out of there. The hair of their heads was not singed. We're going to come back. That's an interesting thing that Jesus picks up on that we'll get in the New Testament later. Their cloaks were not harmed. They still had their position, the symbols of their authority in the land. And no smell of fire had come upon them. They came out of this like they had never gone in except for one thing. They were no longer bound. Again, that will be very important next week when we come back. And Nebuchadnezzar said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own preview for next week. There is no conquering sin in your life except that you are willing to endure the uncomfortability of not satisfying it. They refuse to obey to the point of offering up their bodies. It's Romans 6. It's Romans 6. And therefore I make a decree. Any people, and notice he says that they did not serve any God except their own God. Still not his God. That'll happen in chapter 4. Therefore I make a decree, any people or nation or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in roots. This guy has an anger problem. For there's no other God who's able to rescue in this way. And the king promoted them in the province of, of Babylon. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus gives an account of a man who was a poor man. His name is Lazarus. He's one of two named that in the New Testament. And every day he sat begging at the gate of a rich man. And the rich man apparently was not very magnanimous to him. And as a matter of fact, the scripture says that the dogs would come and lick his sores. The guy was fairly defenseless. He couldn't even fend off the the animals. It was a tragic scene. Jesus goes on to say that both of these men died. The poor man uh, knew his God and was promoted to heaven, or as uh, the phrase is in the bosom of Abraham, typical Hebraic way of explaining heaven. And the wealthy man, uh, he was in hell, tormented by flames. at this point, the poor man looks up and he sees this guy in the bosom of Abraham, the poor man who had the rich man looks up and sees the poor man in the bosom of Abraham. And he says, he cries out to Abraham and says, Father Abraham, uh, it's it's bad down here. I'm being tormented. The flames are, are unbearable. And, and would you please ask Lazarus to dip his finger in water and just come down and, and put some water on my tongue? Hell did not break him. Might I say that some of you here are still resisting God. He's been dealing with your life. He's been dealing with you with your sin. He's been dealing with you to call upon him to be your Lord and your Savior, to forgive you. And it's going to take a lot of breaking before you'll finally get there. But some of you, some of you may refuse right up until hell itself. Don't let that be the case. Please don't let that be the case. Bow the need to Christ. Call upon the Lord of glory, the one who was crucified for humans, who has paid the penalty. Ask Him to save you, to be Lord of your life. He saves sinners, not good people. Sinners. This guy remained hard, and his hardness carried him to hell, and he did not break in hell. There will be no second chance. Rob Bell to the contrary. It is appointed unto man once to die, and then comes Judgment. Don't go there. Don't go there. Call on Christ. Abraham said, no, there's a gulf fixed between us. I, You can't come here and we can't go there. And he says, well, then, then do this for me. Verse 27 picks up the narrative of Luke 16. Then I beg you, Father, to send him, that's Lazarus, to my father's house. For there I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, so that they don't come to this place of torment. Maybe you're thinking of this for yourself or for somebody else. I just need to see the miracle. I just need to see the sign from heaven. I just need to see whatever. And Abraham answers, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he cries back, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. And Abraham replied, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. If you will not hear the gospel, the simple truth of the saving grace of Jesus Christ, listen to me your objection and your need of proof is a smokescreen Nebuchadnezzar wouldn't believe we're going to find out later he does and he's going to tell us what turned the, what turned him in chapter 4 but he doesn't believe he's astounded He promotes these guys. He thinks they're something else. He's not quite sure what to do with them. He knows their God is pretty spectacular, even though he's destroyed his temple. But he's still a lost pagan king. If so-and-so finally gives their heart to Christ, I will. If my wife does, I will. If my husband does, I will. If my dad does, I will. If my kid does, I will. If, if I get a phone call at 12.03 in the morning from that woman I haven't talked to for 35 years and she says she's become a Christian, I'll believe. You have the gospel. That God so loved the world. He gave His only begotten Son. Whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting You have to believe that (laughs) and believe it for you and cast yourself on him and he will save you. He will deliver you from your sin. You will be clean. But if you're waiting for the miracle, you may join this gentleman someday. Our time is gone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this tremendous passage is filled with so much that we need to comprehend, to take in fully. Uh, My concern this morning is for so many that have played religion but have never come to Christ. And for my brothers and sisters who are facing some really difficult circumstances right now, but their faith is flagging. Their trust in you is waning. They're, they're about to compromise in sin because it looks too uncomfortable to go without it. And so I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ that there would be a true working of your spirit today to give them added courage to trust you that the very fire through which they might go as a result of denying sin will be the means of freedom. And I pray for those today with us who maybe do not know you and are still outside the wonderful pale of your grace that they will hear this gospel, that it will bring life in their hearts, that today they will look up and confess their sin and call upon you, the Savior of sinners, Christ, the substitute, who dies in our place, and that they will be born again and made new creatures in Christ. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand with me, please? Dismissed.